Jeff Tambellini at the near side circle with 5.3 seconds remaining. Tambellini gives the Wolverines a 6-5 lead. from all the cultures of all the people all over the world. If you hear uh, like you think, oh, the ones that, what do you call it, music at the restaurants or on the elevators? That music is destructive. That music, if we had good music playing for people in a happy society on the streets, you know? Well, I feel like uh, my music, I have a new record coming out. I feel like, well, maybe this time they'll hear it. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. A little dose of Indian summer here in Ann Arbor. About three weeks worth of weather in this one day, because just now on my way up, one of those pop-up downpours. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, down on uh, Stone School and Eisenhower. Oh, Boom. yes. The south side always gets dusted sometimes, and the rest of Ann Arbor is immune. And then, of course, the north side sometimes gets dusted and without hitting the rest of the city. Lovely day, though. Just just lovely out. As a longtime cab driver, I've noticed that over the years. Sometimes you can go from one end to the other, and amazingly, it's snowing or, snowing and or <laughs> raining in one part of Ann Arbor, but not the other of course, Ann Arbor looks a little bit like a bird on a map, so there's a lot of a lot of space out on the east side between the northeast and the southeast. Well, just a quick—I just wanted to give a quick update on the interesting um, uh, presentation at the Ford Library. I mentioned this because oh, that's uh, right. Written Nor- Richard Norton Smith is giving a talk in November on Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, that might be very interesting because he's a kind of a important behind-the-scenes dude who permeated uh, a number of things throughout American history, the Cold War, uh, presidential candidate, eventual bri- vice president. And it was unfortunate and that— One of the last of the classic moderate Republicans. Yeah, and then, of course, it's interesting because there's now been a lot of revisionism about his get-tough-on-drug policies as governor of New York. They're trying to ease those things up in that particular state. Unfortunately, uh, Benton Becker— <laughs> And I'm just going to have to crack this joke because of the passing of Ben Bradley, who might have been a star in Deep Throat, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> of 
course, Ben Bradley, longtime uh, editor of the Washington Post, passed away last week. Yeah. That's, that's the end of an era, as they say. But anyway, Benton Becker was the um, uh, emissary for Gerald R. Ford. And, of course, Ford maintained, and Gormley, who's uh, working on a book on the subject, dean of the Duquesne Law School and has written a couple of books peripherally relate, related to pardons, insisted that there was no deal. Ford um, said has said this throughout his life, and I kind of believe it. Um, and what was interesting was Becker was sort of dispatched out to San Clemente. Nixon was in a profound state of depression, and it's, there was some interesting video clip. Tom Brokaw talked about how the pardon story came out of the blue, that n nobody really knew about it. There weren't any leaks. And Ford just suddenly announced it on Sunday. But before the pardon was issued, uh, Benton Becker, who had helped Ford navigate the hearings on the vice presidential uh, uh, selection that Nixon made after the resignation of Agnew, had worked uh, for Ford and that uh, he had examined the history of the pardon issue through the Constitution and that uh, Antonin Scalia, <laughs> working in the Justice Department at the time, uh, rendered the opinion that uh, Becker relied on and that this was kind of an interesting, obscure case called Burdick versus the United States from the Woodrow Wilson era and that in it, the, a pardon was an acknowledgement of guilt, which... To accept a pardon. Yes, to accept a pardon. And, of course, some people are pardoned who are innocent. <laughs> so I, the legal reasoning there escapes me. But this is an old case that Ford relied on, and he sort of demanded uh, that Richard Nixon acknowledge this, that this was part of the negotiations behind the scenes, that Nixon's lawyers were Jack Miller and Ron Ziegler, who was the longtime press secretary for Richard Nixon, and had all kinds of very humorous comments during the, as the Watergate was in, unfolding. There were two very strange things that I discovered also in this presentation. One was Ford, while acknowledging that he was pardoning Nixon for crimes that he committed or may have committed against the United States, at one point said that it's a tragedy that we have all participated in. <laughs> and that's not my recollection of Watergate. <laughs> It was a nightmare that Ford used in his press conference. Um, well, for his party, certainly. Or I think it was actually his joint uh, address to, to Congress. The other thing that was very fascinating was out in the display cases. They have a lot of uh, paraphernalia at the Ford Presidential Library up on North Campus that houses his presidential papers. There is a museum uh, in Grand Rapids that probably has more of the paraphernalia, but this uh, uh, glass case actually had an, a, a letter that Nixon wrote the day that he officially resigned to Henry Kissinger, and Kissinger's signature and time are on the piece of paper. And Kissinger's notation is 11.35 a.m. Oh, like as of time of receipt? Yes. And so... Henry Kissinger, believe it or not, at that point was second in line for the presidency because Nixon informed me. <laughs> sure, I can walk. So I found this to be a very interesting revelation uh, because Rockefeller's uh, uh, hearings would, would follow. 
And then, of course, the amusing thing was that uh, Becker, they had a video of Becker. He couldn't make the uh, scheduled uh, appearance due to ill health. So they had a videotape of him. And he had one really amusing anecdote about Nixon and his, uh, shall we say, lassitude <laughs> from the pardon. Becker was leaving. He'd, he'd done the negotiations. He never actually met Nixon until this moment. And then apparently Nixon said, oh, oh, oh come back here. And, and Nixon brought him back into his office. Nixon, by the way, had spent uh, several million dollars of taxpayer money creating the San Clemente pa- uh, compound. He also had one in Key Biscayne, Florida, where he... Old Office West, has it? Drank drinks with baby Rebozo. And other assorted. Walked the beach with a metal detector. <laughs> All the president's men. They used to cruise up and down the Potomac in a boat drinking cocktails. But anyway, what was hilarious about this story was Nixon reached into his desk. Becker is describing this. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, he's going to grab a gun. <laughs> Becker didn't say this, but I could just picture it. Uh, but Nixon did not grab a gun. He grabbed a little box. <laughs> and what he did was he gave Becker a gift. And he said, you know, at least you weren't a bully. <laughs> he said, at least you were, you were, your, your presentation here, you weren't a bully. I really appreciate that. And I, I've got this gift for you here. And what they were, <laughs> were a pair of cufflinks with the presidential seal. Nixon famously used to wear a jacket on Air Force One in which it was a it was a kind of a leather jacket that said the president of the United States on it. Kind of like a letter jacket. Yeah. <laughs> These are all the idiosyncrasies about Nixon's personalities I've always found fascinating. Before the Fonz. <laughs> before the Fonz. Nixon jumped the shark before the Fonz. <laughs> he, he did, yeah. <laughs> At least you weren't a bully. And then in a moment of, of sort of depression, because uh, I, I, my sense was Becker, who was telling the story uh, at the 40th anniversary of the, the pardon that was held earlier this year. It was a very recent video. Said that Nixon was, was showing Becker around, you know, showing her at his office. And he said, he's like, look at this. Look at all this stuff. They're taking it away from me. And I'm cracking up listening to this story. <laughs> like a walking, talking ghost. Pure, uh, uh, pure Nixonian Nixon Pathos. land. Just yeah. weird weirdness. They're taking it all away from me. Well, you know, many people suffer <laughs> and struggle under a uh, profound state of depression for no good reason at all. But Nixon, of course, had multiple good reasons to... Suffer from a profound state of depression. Yeah. And Gormley, of course, made the persuasive argument, I think, that Ford had issued the pardon to, quote, uh, put this behind the nation. He did it for the good of the nation. He, quote, did the right thing, knew he would suffer political consequences because he had been advised against it by uh, some of his uh, insiders, as they say. And that very few people actually knew about the pardon. Uh, He pointed out that Ford was an Eagle Scout, so he wanted to do the right thing. And he was concerned about his agenda. He wanted to kind of close a chapter and move on to his economic and foreign policy agenda, which, of course, 
meant keeping Henry Kissinger in place. At the time, by the way, Henry Kissinger was both Secretary of State and National, National Security, Security Advisor, Advisor yeah. uh, which is a very unusual. Um, Probably uh, ill-advised. <laughs> yeah. Well, and... Um, a little bit of overlap and too much turf. Too much turf, and the thing was, was when Nixon, or when Kissinger came into the government of Nixon, he was the National Security Advisor, um, who Nixon relied on far more heavily than the Secretary of State, William Rogers, who'd gone way back with Nixon, back to his congressional career. And it's kind of interesting when you look at some of the Watergate tapes how negatively uh, both Rogers and Kissinger portray uh, Nixon and Kissinger portray Rogers at times. Well, now that I've said that it was a little bit of overlap and too much turf to wear both hats of being Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, they're also at cross purposes, really. Yeah. Because the Secretary of State's job is to sort of be the chief negotiator exactly. for the country. And the National Security Advisor is a total behind the scenes. What can we do to control and manipulate this scenario in South America? Yeah, and it's interesting when I'm actually reading a book right now uh, by Douglas Brinkley about some of the last tapes that have been released to the public, and this book focuses on the foreign policy issues of the Nixon presidency. I haven't finished it yet, but I'll probably give a brief report in a couple of weeks. You have to be a real Nixon scholar, by the way, to read this book. It's it's pretty, pretty standard stuff about foreign policy specifically. There's not the... Uh, <laughs> dirty tricks Nixon portrayed in these tapes much, though there is one very amusing segment about uh, <laughs> women and swearing and Nixon's speculation about the Greeks and homosexuality. That's, of course, the comical Nixon that we love to expose down here on Great Matters. So we'll have a little report on that in a couple of weeks after I get through this book. But this is the cynical Nixon who's using the... Uh, summit with the Russians, uh, Brezhnev, and the um, opening to China, so to speak, to fool the public in, in, a, in a sense about what he's really doing. These were uh, both sort of held late in his first term, uh, designed to sort of take the edge off his Indo-Chinese policy. And you see this sort of battling Nixon, this sort of schizophrenic, paranoid Nixon, debating between getting tough and showing the Russians how tough he can be with bombing and all these weird uh, policies involved with North Vietnam, while at the same time tr trying to quote, as he put it, fool the American people. Um, he he had literally admits this to Kissinger. So there's uh -huh. this incredible cynical aspect to many of the discussions between Nixon and uh, Kissinger. So. Well, for a time there, as of course, we're uh, in the final week of the uh, month of October, Halloween's this Friday. Uh, for many years, the uh, Nixon rubber face mask was one of the big sellers Yeah, every year. And it's still available out there as a classic mask. Uh, I don't know the extent to which it's, you know, what, what its numbers are uh, lately, but. Well, Hunter S. Thompson had one because one of the funniest things in the documentary Gonzo was uh, Hunter S. Thompson driving the uh, driving the big car with the Nixon <laughs> the Nixon mask. 
probably uh, engaging in all forms of debauchery <laughs> with that mask on. You could get away with anything with a face like that. Yeah, and of course Nixon's got a number of references to football as usual in in these foreign policy discussions. He's well, that's his chief metaphoric tool bag for foreign policy is, yeah. is football related terms. Um, you know, being tough and. Of course, he attacks the media off and on. Uh, and it's interesting, of course, in the passing of Ben Bradley, that what really put the Washington Post on the map before the Watergate coverage by Bernstein and Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein, uh, I think you can give Woodward the credit for doing most of the kind of the legwork, the real <laughs> digging up the, the, the stuff, and Bernstein did a lot of rewriting, but he had some of his own sources. Uh, Woodward was a better, as they call it, shoe leather journalist who was good at banging on doors and getting people to admit things uh, because he had a kind of a easygoing manner, uh, which I think the movie accurately portrayed. But of course, the well, Washington- Robert Redford is about uh, as charming as they got yeah, in the mid-70s. And, and uh, Jason Robards played Bradley in the... Uh, famous movie, but it was the Pentagon Papers in which the Washington Post joined the New York Times um, that really put, you know, created this enemy's concept that Nixon had both against the Post and the New York Times, and this made the, uh, you know, the appeal to the Supreme Court even more relevant. Um, well, it's it's probably difficult for people under the age of thirty, certainly, to understand just how important newspapers were. Yeah, at, at that time, I mean, most major cities had multiple uh, daily newspapers. Yeah, uh, and that's of course not true anymore. Uh, locally here, it's pretty obvious that we're down to next to nothing for local papers. And interestingly, uh, Ford's first. Um uh, press spokesman was a guy from the Detroit News called Gerald Terhorst, who resigned over the Nixon pardon. So he wasn't there very long because Ford basically pardoned Nixon uh, almost a month to the day that he res- that it, that Nixon had resigned the presidency. So Gerald Terhorst, his uh, letter of resignation, by the way, is in this special exhibit at the currently at the Ford Presidential Library. That may well change. Those those glass exhibits out front do change. But they have some very interesting stuff uh, from time to time. And uh, I encourage people, uh, most of the talks that they give up there are definitely related to presidential uh, history, as they say. Uh, I encourage people to go attend the, the uh, a, a talk up there from time to time because they're very interesting. And many of these uh, authors that are... Uh, presenting their books, essentially, uh, have done exhaustive research, including some research at the Ford Library. Um, (laughs) Since Ford, you know, he went back in Congress uh, back to the 1940s. Interestingly, he originally served with Richard Nixon Mm -hmm. in a Republican caucus of 15 members. Nixon was sort of the de facto chief of this thing. And it had the bizarre name of the Chowder and Marching Society. <laughs> now, what that's all about, I have no idea, but I kind of picture Daffy Duck and Porky Pig uh, doing a, a parade march with Daffy Duck leading the way with the trombone. 
<laughs> I don't know what the chowder and marching society refers to, but Ford was part of this uh, little caucus. They were freshman congressmen together, but Nixon at sure that point had put his martini lunch operation had put his name on the map uh, thanks to Huac. And Ford, of course, later became the minority leader. Um, never majority leader, by the way, um, but minority leader, and he was on the Warren Commission. Well, I mean, Ford's uh, presidency is essentially a caretaker one. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of William Henry Harrison, who died from pneumonia like a month into office, it's the shortest presidency ever served, uh, Gerald Ford's. Uh, and you wonder, uh, I mean... Well, and James Garfield, but he was... Oh, okay. He was I, yeah, assassinated, yeah, the, but... True, true, I, I, the time frame on that one. Um, but you wonder, I mean, Jimmy Carter, of course, rose to the top of the Democrats' list that year, but uh, probably anybody could have won, practically, after the pardon. Yeah, that, that... that Any Democrat, I think, would have probably won that year. That caused Ford to plummet in the polls, Um it's interesting that Ted Kennedy, uh, who was very critical of the pardon at the time later in life, admitted that Ford had done the right thing by pardoning Nixon, that it was basically it allowed the country to, quote, move on, and that Ford had taken undue criticism about the pardon uh, because people had a knee-jerk reaction. Tom Brokaw had a brief clip uh, in the uh, presentation by... Uh, Dean Gormley of Duquesne University of Law School, uh, in which he talked about the <laughs> the switchboard lighting up and, you know, all of the criticism. It was, you know, 50 to 1. Uh, so there was a lot of outrage about the pardon. Uh, I did ask a question at, at the Q&A session pointing out that I thought the most outrageous pardon, because they had discussed the Bill Clinton-Mark Rich pardon. But I pointed out that I thought the most outrageous pardon was George H.W. Bush's pardon of the Iran-Contra figures. Oh, right. A as a lame duck that basically was a cover-up that cut off the uh, legal ramifications of the participants in the Iran-Contra affair that uh, certainly George Bush, H.W. Bush, was involved in. And certainly would have revealed more dirt, uh, shall we say, on Ronald Reagan's presidency and H.W. Bush's role in the Iran-Contra affair that I think was covered up partially by the Tower Commission. Bush was one of the first witnesses interviewed, so he was tight-lipped as a former head of the CIA, <laughs> a position that he served under. Gerald Ford. That's correct. He, by the way, was on a short list to become VP, H.W. Uh, Bush. Well, before that, I think he was head of the GOP, the yeah. chairman of the party. He was RNC chairman while Watergate was correct <laughs> unfolding. There's a guy who kept dodging bullets, man. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, he was in a lot of places at strange times. I, I don't know if uh, Woody Allen wants to redo Zelig, but... <laughs> H.W. Bush might be uh, a good candidate, and it's shocking to be reading a front-page story about Jeb Bush running for president in 2016. Let's hope not. Yeah, well, the cover of the new Harper's Magazine, which has just hit the stands, is basically uh, pushing back in the other direction. Yeah. Stop Hillary. Right. Uh, Doug Henwood from the uh, left business observer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I've not yet read that, but... Uh, well, I think Hillary is far more qualified and would be a far more formidable candidate, but I, I think that a Clinton-Bush... They've dominated. It's it's sort of like turning... Turnout in, would be low. I think it's turning into Israeli and Gladstone. <laughs> it's, it's become a little tiresome. And, uh, of course, the elections are next week, and it's rather depressing to see that, uh, you know... The major news media are covering Ebola. I heard a little minor report on on the media that 28 percent of the coverage on uh, television in the big three networks has been about Ebola over the past couple of weeks. And obviously, uh, we've had a school shooting in the state of Washington in which more Americans have died. I'm kind of wondering where the hysteria is about that. And well, then, of course, you have the quarantine. and There's you, the crazed uh, individual in Ottawa as well. Yeah. And as far as the, the school shooting, it's, I mean, these are now below-the-fold stories. I mean, if you think back to the, uh, the terrible incident just before Christmas uh, in Connecticut with all the uh, small children being shot. Yeah. Um, if that didn't do anything to snap people out of their torpor or to uh, taint the money that comes from the NRA in... Uh, Campaign funding sure. matters. Uh, you know, what would if you uh, had armies of uh, dope fiends running into school and shooting children up with heroin? Uh, would that outrage people? But no, uh, somebody with the free and easy access to guns. In fact, uh, Saturday's New York Times has an article about how the fairly modest uh, gun control measures put forward in New York by Governor Cuomo are uh, being challenged with languages uh, such as uh, my ability to own guns in New York is at stake this year. And all it really did was ban uh, assault weapons, uh, high magazine clips, uh, and broaden the uh, range of uh, background checks. Yeah, and, and the amazing thing was in Sunday's New York Times, there's a gun rights advocate claiming that African Americans should be allied with the NRA over the right to possess guns using a kind of racist... Uh, historical argument that many of the gun control laws that were passed were, quote, directed at African-Americans in the South. And Um, also uh, law enforcement is uh, less concerned with protecting the uh, rights and safety of those in black neighborhoods. Well, and and as Charles Blow pointed out in uh, a recent editorial, um, you know, African-Americans are five to six thousand men are dying from gun violence every year. Those are the numbers. Uh, they're 30% of the total gun deaths in urban areas. And, that the, you know, the homicides, never mind the suicides and the accidents, mm-hmm. are in the, uh, you know, in the twelve to 13,000 range. And, of course, this unfortunate event in Washington State, you know, the only politician that I heard even make a comment about it was basically one of the tribal uh, elders, uh, this uh, young man. Troubled, obviously, and uh, did a terrible thing, well, and and nobody can understand it because right. he was apparently he doesn't popular. fit any of the profiles. Yeah. He was a jock who had friends. Yeah. You know, he had family support. He has all the classic signs of a fairly stable kid. But you know, teenagers are moody and emotional, and you have these surges, and so we're going to hear a lot of talk about mental health and so forth. Uh, I think all the studies and background interviews are going to show that. 
this kid probably didn't have any real major serious troubles. Uh, he just had these this access to a gun. Yeah, and he then get, had a bad day, and you know, gotten we, into a scuffle earlier in the terrible yeah. <laughs> about a, a failed romantic relationship or a or scuffle some, in, a scuffle of with some, his some cousins or whatever. Yeah. So it, it's one of those things no. that just on top of a couple other things, you know, you do really poorly on a biology test and you, somebody's going to be mad at you at home and then this happens and there's a gun. Yeah, and there's an access to a gun. That's the problem. That is the key here that it, you know, mental health, yes, is part of it, but the free and easy access to these weapons of mass destruction which we couldn't quite find in Iraq. They're sprinkled all over this country. And it's unfortunate I think that in Canada, which obviously did suffer a genuine Shocker. Terrorist attack, yeah. you know, an unarmed. Well, I think he probably, I don't know, maybe he was armed, but I mean, a sentry guarding a, a building, you know, he, he's a sitting duck, that sort of, and then this guy would go on a attempt to enter parliament that's that's open, you know, and that Canada would then uh, overreact. This is, this is, I mean, this is the thing about terrorism that's so unfortunate about the response Today, the United States officially handed over, you know, the flag and the fort, so to speak, in Afghanistan. We spent a trillion dollars in Afghanistan uh, after 9-11. And it's a little unclear what we've accomplished. I think that the new president of Afghanistan, in which we negotiated the settlement, by the way, um, is, 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 you know, the report, early reports is that he's much preferable to uh, Karzai. He's cut out these big feasts and state dinners, and as one BBC reporter put it, he's cut way down on the retinue of hangers-on and people that are around the president. So we'll see what happens. And he's well, that's focused how Karzai ran his, yeah. his operation was, you know, I, I'm going to give you the goods. I'd like to uh, thank Andrew uh, again for engineering this evening. Do stay tuned to Yazoo, Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Interesting to note all of the... the new fear about guardrails and airbags. Um, what next? <laughs> and obviously there are, you know, there are some serious questions about this corporation, which I might uh, hasten to add is connected to the state of Texas and uh, questionable uh, contracts that were approved. More on that later. But, uh, you know, <laughs> this is this is contracting by the government. Under the Bush administration. We're out of time. Stay tuned for the blues. Lonnie Johnson in the gin bottle four in the background telling you it's time for Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Jerry Mack, your host this evening for an hour-long excursion into the land of Delta Blues and early urban blues performed and lived by the men and women who started it all. This particular track called the uh, Blue Blood Blues uh, recorded in New York City in 1929 featuring of course, Lenny Johnson on the guitar, along with Eddie Lang, J.C. Johnson on the piano, King Oliver on cornet, 
Hoagie Carmichael on the percussion, and he'll be doing a little scat vocal here in a little bit. Anyway, uh, it's Monday evening. It's autumn weather out, breezy, a little bit rainy. One of the last nice days we'll see, so enjoy the rest of it and enjoy some Monday evening blues here on WCBN with Lonnie Johnson and the Gin Bottle 4. (laughs) 